Before we get started, please note that the following interview includes content related to a teen suicide that may be distressing to some listeners. Hello, I'm Rick Millenthal from The Shipyard, and welcome to Voices of Resilience. In this series, we have top thought leaders who share their personal stories that have fueled their passion to help others navigate stress, trauma, and adversity, especially in these challenging times. I'm happy to have with us my friend and colleague, David Grislock, and also a good friend, Dr. Luan Fon, Chairman of the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Health at The Ohio State University. David and Luan, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Thanks for having us. So David, we're business partners in a marketing company called The Shipyard. We're not medical professionals like Luan, yet you really were kind of the inspiration to think that we might have a place in the conversation for mental health. And that really was part of the inspiration to do this series. Why did you think that, David? Yeah, well, we spent our careers in marketing, communications, and the advertising business. And at the core, that's about changing people's perceptions, changing the way people see and how they behave in the world around them. When you look at the current state of mental health and all the things that need to be done in order to change the trajectory of mental health today, at, or at least very near the top of that list, I believe, is changing the way we talk about and think about mental health. Despite how common issues such as depression, anxiety, and disorders are today, there still is a stigma that surrounds them. And those stigmas of shame, guilt, blame, embarrassment are actually quite dangerous to the topic because they keep us from talking about mental health. They keep mental health locked behind closed doors, and that only prohibits people from raising their hands and getting the help that they need. But it also is very dangerous to our ability to raise dollars for research and treatments that are necessary in order to make progress in the areas of mental health. So while you and I aren't doctors or medical professionals, on this topic right now, what we do is actually critically important because progress in mental health will only be made once we lift the stigma, we talk about this topic, we communicate this topic effectively, and we start to change the way people feel about it. Luan, you think that's right? Is communication a big part? Absolutely. I think the the more we're able to share with each other the importance of this topic, the closer we'll get to coming up with real solutions for real-life settings and uh, real-life situations. David, you came to have a passion for this subject through a pretty important personal story. Do you mind sharing that with us? Of course. Um, Just over two years ago, I lost my 17-year-old son, also named David, who passed by suicide. Uh, David, from the outside looking in, had everything in his life. Uh, He was good looking. He was smart. He had good grades. He played sports, um, had lots of friends, had lots of girlfriends. But Right before high school, uh, that started to change, and he started to deal with anxiety. Uh, Eventually, the anxiety continued to get worse, and eventually anxiety led to depression, and anxiety and depression eventually snowballed into suicidal ideation. And we spent three years uh, in and out of doctor's offices, in and out of hospitals. We even moved across the country together and spent several months in a facility in order to get some more permanent treatment for him in order to help him with his issues and his mental health. And, and we fought and we fought and we fought and were unsuccessful in that fight. 
And as a parent, I felt helpless. And looking at my son, I know he felt helpless as well. When I talk a lot about the stigmas that surround mental health, and I say things like shame and embarrassment and guilt that keep people from talking about the topic in our country today, you know, I have a lot of feelings over the loss of my son, but I'm not embarrassed and I'm not ashamed. And I know without a doubt that none of it was self inflicted. You know, my son would come to me and he didn't understand why he felt the way that he felt. He didn't want to feel the way that he felt. Uh, he would raise his hand and ask to go to the hospital. He'd tell me, Dad, I'm, I don't know why I feel this way. I don't trust my thoughts right now. I think I need something more permanent. I need to go to the hospital. And we did that at least seven different times throughout those three years. And when I say he fought, that's how I feel. I feel like this was a battle with an illness. It was an illness that we eventually lost. And I know others are experiencing it and others are dealing with issues to varying degrees in their own lives. And the fact that we don't talk about it or that we're ashamed or that we're embarrassed by the things that are happening in our lives around mental health is just absolutely wrong. And so when we lost my son, uh, my wife and I decided that we would be a voice and do everything that we can do. And obviously, through our company and marketing, communications, and advertising, you and I as partners realize that just by making sure that we're open and we communicate and we talk about this topic, we can start to make a difference and start to help people realize that it's okay, that they're not at fault. There's no shame or embarrassment around mental health as an illness. And hopefully that gets the ball started towards progress and keeps momentum building towards progress. And hopefully, you know, I can help other families not go through the same experience that I went through with my son. It's so brave of you to share this story so publicly. And my wife, Karen, and I know you and Liz, and we've witnessed this journey with you. And a big inspiration for us is that so soon after you were willing to share, that doesn't happen for a lot of people, does it? Unfortunately, we know a lot of families who have lost children, teenagers who passed by suicide. Um, we've got to know them in private communities and situations and scenarios that we're placed into. But to a large degree, just in general, when someone themselves are struggling or you have a family member or a friend or a loved one who's struggling, it isn't something that's talked about. And it isn't something that people feel comfortable and safe talking about because they feel that the outside world will judge them. Unfortunately, that stigma remains in which we think that mental health is a choice. We think that some of the things that we experience are either self-inflicted or the result of being weak-minded. And because of that, we shy away from it. We don't communicate what we're going through. We don't tell others about what our loved ones are going through. We keep it private. And that only does more damage and makes treatment and progress less successful and the more private and the more kept behind closed doors we keep it. When you started to do that, did people respond? Yeah, it's one of the most interesting things from my perspective is, you know, Elizabeth and I, when we started talking about our loss and, and what we went through, so many other families and, and, and people that we don't know, complete strangers from really around the country uh, have started to reach out to us and have continued to reach out to us two years later sharing the experiences that they're going through and asking for our advice and guidance and any help that we can give them when it comes to treatment for either, again, themselves or a loved one. And what's remarkable about that is that 
you know, we, we lost our son. And so in a lot of ways, you know, we were highly unsuccessful at managing mental health with our child. But families reach out to us because they know that it's safe. And they know that we're at least a, a safe place for them to come and share what they're going through and know that they won't be judged. And I think when you see something like that, and we see it every day in, our, in our, my own personal lives, uh, my wife and I with other families, it really speaks to how desperate people are and how much of a strong need they have to get help and to, and to talk to others and share this experience with others in order to get advice and counsel because we lost our son, so they know we won't judge them where they should feel that way with any of their family, friends, anyone that's close to them, they should feel like that judgment won't exist and they should be able to share their lives because it's an illness just like any other illness. You had to feel some of that in the beginning. You and Liz, those are natural feelings. You, you had to power through it, didn't you? Yeah, I mean, there's two things. One is that, you know, I got to unfortunately live it firsthand. So like I said, I saw how hard my son was fighting. I saw every day how much he wanted to get better and how strong he was in fighting the thoughts that he was having and the feelings that he was having. So while instincts might be to not share that story or to feel all those things that I talked about, just in his honor, you know, it felt like it was the only the right thing to do was to be open and transparent about it and communicate what the reality of the situation was. You know, his strength gives us strength to continue that conversation because it would be wrong of us to be embarrassed and it'd be wrong of us to feel ashamed of his fight. And so, again, mainly in his honor, it's important that we don't treat it that way. We treat it for what it was. It was a fight. It was a fight that we lost. And unfortunately, a lot of other people are dealing with similar losses in their lives. We won. David is telling, obviously, such a important personal story for him and his family, but he's also telling a story about the medical community and how we are facing suicide and depression today. David and Liz were not those folks that were in denial. As he said, he had, nor was his son. And I know because Karen and I witnessed this with David and Liz, you know, they, they worked very hard for a long time. Where do you think we are today in our medical ecosystem or our healthcare ecosystem in dealing with mental health, dealing with depression? And maybe also, where do you hope we'll be in the future? Thanks, Rick. And um, I've said this to David before, but I want to echo how courageous. It is for him and Elizabeth to share their story. It has resonated with me uh, as it is with others who have heard the same story, um, sort of motivates us to do better. Obviously, young David and David and Elizabeth were already seeking treatment, so they're not part of the majority. Uh, they already stepped forward out of the shadows to try to get help for their son. And ultimately, as medical professionals, we're in the business of saving lives. And in regards to depression and anxiety, uh, we have an opportunity to save lives every day. And the system, uh, whether you call it the system uh, of, of medical professionals or the healthcare system or the psychiatric system, we at worst failed young David 
And at best, we weren't successful enough, right? Either way, for me personally, it's not good enough. Despite the fact that we have treatments, the road to recovery is a long one. And in that way, suicide rates continues to climb and climb in our country. To me, that should be a warning call at this current time, we're worried about a worldwide pandemic, but the epidemic of suicide has raged America for quite some time, and it's about time we begin to shine more of a light on it and understand how, how big of a problem it is. It's only from that recognition that we can then begin to bring awareness to our communities, bring awareness to our researchers and our clinicians, bring awareness to our politicians and our policymakers, bring awareness to Congress and the federal agencies that fund research so that we can bring to bear as many resources, as many heads, as many hands, as many hearts together to address this epidemic. And, and only then do I see us taking a turn for the better and addressing this problem with more awareness, more research on the causes of suicide, and more research into ways to prevent suicide from, uh, from occurring in the first place. It's really interesting to hear you talk about it as an epidemic and then talk about it as a disease and even talk about something that could be cured you feel suicide can be reduced, can be cured? Or how would you frame it? Well, absolutely. I mean, I believe um, that all mental illnesses, all challenges that hurt our ability to be emotional well are rooted in the brain. Uh, that it is this organ that controls our moods our emotions, our affect, our cognitions, which is the way we think, the decisions that we make, all those things uh, come from the brain. And that's not to say environment uh, and other things are not relevant. They're very relevant. In fact, I believe that environmental stress, things that go on in your life, the struggles that you have, the adversity that you have, the trauma and the stressors that you have, in which we've talked about in prior podcasts, they also affect the brain. Luan, you lead the psychiatry department at one of the largest universities in the country. So to hear you talk about that, we can actually affect and reduce this epidemic is a real message of hope. But for you, David, you lived through it. Yeah, I just got to believe that that's the case. I can't tell you how horrifying it is to have your 15-year-old son come to you at night and tell you that he's thinking about suicide and feeling like he needs to go to the hospital because he can't control his thoughts. You know, Dr. Fon is right. That's not, you know, a normal or typical reaction or response. I, I can't speak to the medical side of it, but I think that if we can understand what would cause a 15-year-old to feel that way, when he's surrounded with everything that you'd think you can ask for as a human being, um, then we can make a difference. I, I really hate seeing 
the way people are and the way that they suffer and, and, and the fact that suicide rates are what they are today. It's just a horrifying reality for me to think about whatever the number was, 100 and something families a day going through something like that is just absolutely terrifying. And you also experienced what Luan is trying to change, not trying to change what he is working at changing, a medical ecosystem, a healthcare system that really is kind of nascent right now at being able to help compared to other diseases. Right, David? Yeah, absolutely. And Dr. Fon says there's a lot about the, the human brain that are left to be discovered. I think that's right. I think, you know, from our standpoint, raising awareness and driving the conversation is about raising dollars so that more research can be done on the one organ in our body that we least understand. Where we are today, said Dr. Fon said, you know, insufficient. I don't have the answers until what went wrong or why treatment didn't work for my son. Um, but obviously, we are looking for a manual. We are looking for a treatment. We are looking for anything we possibly can find that would change his thought patterns, change the way he felt about himself. And in our situation, we just weren't able to find it. And I know in a lot of other instances, you know, treatments help and, and treatments have a very positive impact. It's just in our situation, there's obviously more work that needs to get done so that in our scenario and scenarios like ours, that we can have a better result. Yeah. I think what you're saying is if you also had the horrifying situation that a child had cancer or had a, another physical health condition, as bad as that is, you would engage with the healthcare professionals. They would give you a medical pathway. And here's the percentages of success with it. You're able to work toward a path. But in a way, right now, you could feel a bit lost on what to do. I know that we certainly did feel that way. I know that the families that reach out to us feel that way. You know, we hear stories all the time of parents sleeping outside the door of their child's room, waiting for the next treatment, waiting for the next counseling session, unsure if things are working or if things aren't working. You know, I think it's fair to also say that it's a different kind of health issue in which with cancer and chemo and different treatments, you can take a picture and know that you're making progress and know, know that things are working. You don't have that when you're living through an experience from mental health. You have good days, you have bad days, but there's not an easy way to take an overall snapshot picture and know that things are working. And I think that makes it scarier. It also has the negative consequence you know, because you don't know it's working, you can't see it's working. People probably don't carry on with treatment as much as they need to or as much as they should. And I think it's frustrating and it's confusing and it's scary as an individual that's going through it. And hopefully as we learn more and treatments improve, there'll be easier ways to navigate that both as an individual and as a loved one with someone who's suffering from mental health issues. Does that resonate with you, Levon? The idea that the family and the patient almost can't get a snapshot. It's very difficult to know where they stand in this disease. This is an area that's not really well-funded right now. I mean, it, it really is that many of these other issues are funded. There's a lot of momentum behind it. Um, uh, well, first of all, you have to tell me if you agree with that. But um, what do you think are the hurdles to getting the funding and the intention we need 
in order to make progress in mental health and depression? Yeah, I think it's a complex question, and, and the correct answer is probably a very complex one. Uh, it's multifactorial. Certainly, I do believe we need more funding on mental illness and on the brain, and it is the most complex organ that we have in our bodies, tens and hundreds and thousands fold, much more complex than uh, the kidney, the liver, the heart. And so it takes a lot to unravel the mysteries of the brain. And so because of that complexity, that's also slowed us as well. Mm-hmm. The last part, uh, and I'm starting to move towards several other layers now, but the last is, is sort of the, the need for, for all hands on deck. Certainly medical researchers and scientists exist within universities uh, and academic centers, but they also exist in the pharmaceutical industry, which could be a place of innovation as well. And that could be great partners to uh, help us come up with better treatments for psychiatric diseases uh, as partners with universities and academia. And then, you know, I think the last is more awareness from our communities because greater awareness brings more resources, more attention to better funding for research and more philanthropic funding of our academic research enterprise as well. So I think there's always a need for more funding. And I think those who are trying to cure cancer, those who are trying to cure heart disease, those who are trying to cure Alzheimer's dementia, have a platform on stage as well at our medical center. I just want us in psychiatry and behavioral health to have a similar kind of urgency and a similar uh, amount of space uh, around the table and on that stage. David, today, trauma like this, you live with forever. It comes back to you forever. And your whole family today both lives with the trauma, remembering the love they had for David Jr. And they need to live on. That's sometimes a challenge. I mean, yeah, it continues to be a challenge in just day-to-day life. An example of that is, uh, just take for instance, you know, it's, it's really, I don't want to say interesting, but the juxtaposition of what Dr. Fawn was just talking about and the complexities of the brain and how vast our kind of unknown knowledge is of the brain and work that can be done there to better understand. And I take the last day of my son's life where, you know, the best tool that I had was really just talking to him and asking him how he felt. And he uh, went on a date, actually, on a Friday night, came home around 730 played video games with his younger brother for about an hour. I fed them both snacks. I talked to my son. He's in a really good mood, said he felt great. Uh, we decided that we were going to like watch a show at like 10 o'clock together and go downstairs and, and hang out and watch a show together. And he was going to make some phone calls and talk to friends or whatever. And we, get, we were going to talk in a very short period of time. And uh, the real trauma that I still deal with and coming to my son's room to grab him to go watch a show and finding my son had passed is something that is just gut-wrenching on a day-to-day basis. Um, I have real PTSD, violent imagery that's stuck in my head when I'm grieving my son. 
sometimes, you know, so it goes from terror to grief in an instant. My youngest son has immense amount of guilt feeling that he stopped playing video games with them and left David alone for that period of time. You know, feels like he should have gone back. He has, has a lot of things he's trying to deal with. And we all have guilt and we all have uh, immense amount of stress and trauma as a result of losing our son and really going through that entire process with him. But things that we can do are pay our penance and try to make a difference in the world, try to hopefully help families not experience and go through the same thing. And really just rally around each other and make sure that we're there for each other, you know, not repeat mistakes, uh, be loving, be supportive for one another, and, and find strength in, in the very simple things like love and, and family and faith. So it sounds like you find resilience in helping others. 100%. It's both uh, strength and resilience. It's a little bit of penance, but definitely it's one of the best ways that I can recharge both myself and my family is by to take steps forward and try to do something that's meaningful and, and hopefully have a positive impact on those that we touch. Luan, what is the best thing or some things a family can do when they have a trauma that's never going to go away like this when they are living with this? I think that the first is to acknowledge that loss and to begin to grieve that loss um, in a way that eventually gets you towards acceptance and towards finding meaning. Something that we talked about in the first podcast about how do we find meaning in the context of grieving. Um, and, and finding meaning is, is really different for different people, but ultimately it's about finding ways to appreciate the life that young David did live and what he was able to contribute to the family, to his friends, to his school, to his neighbors, to his community during his life and, and to find the light in the darkness that is there uh, in the great things that, that young David did contribute to during his life. And then ultimately, it is exactly how we began this conversation. How do you turn this deep sorrow and this loss to something more positive? How do you use your experience to then comfort other families whose loss might be as raw as yours or even more raw as yours, or he who is struggling even more? How do you find a way to support them? How do you go about spreading awareness uh, on the importance of mental illness and encourage strategies for suicide prevention so that you do end up being a cause that saves lives. And I think the last thing I would say is to continue to fight for social connection amongst each other, to, to not be, be isolated, not to feel that you're suffering, you're enduring this loss alone and not to compare one loss versus another loss or how you're dealing with one loss versus how another person in your family is dealing with the loss. I think sometimes people who have lost a loved one, I don't know if the best word is a tendency, but too often there's a judgment um, that somehow we inflict upon another person that we loved who's also lost, but we do this horrible thing of comparing. So we say, 
why don't you feel the same way I do? Or why aren't you reacting the same way that I do? Or why are you reacting too much or too little? Mm, every family is different. And David, it's true that everybody in the family is different. Everybody grieves differently, don't they? And you must uh, work to understand each other. Yeah, my wife and I, Elizabeth, we're very well aware of the statistics. Most marriages don't last uh, when a child passes by suicide. And we had spent very early days uh, having open dialogue conversations around the fact that we knew we were going to grieve differently and to accept each other for the way that we grieved and the way we went through the process. And I think those just establishing that right from the onset has helped us tremendously. We shared as a passion to make a difference. You know, we shared a pride in David and the impact that he had on this world and the promise to continue to have an impact in his name. But the grieving looked very different and was very different for both of us and our kids at different times. And, uh, you have to work at it. You have to work to accept it and not judge it and understand that the pain is the same. It may get expressed differently or look different. Uh, but I think it was a very real conscious decision that we had to make as a family to accept those differences in order to stay close and stay connected and avoid some of those things that Dr. Fon was talking about. Do you think there is a cure for depression? Do you think there's a cure for suicide? Absolutely. I think that there's a cure for depression. And I think that there's a cure for suicides that is a result of depression and other psychiatric illnesses. And that cure will only come through invigorated, thoughtful, careful research that will ultimately lead to treatments that lead to this cure. David, I want to tell you how grateful I am to you and Liz for being so brave and talking about this. You know, we all have relationships and experiences in our life. My uh, father-in-law, we lost him through suicide, my wife's father. And when Luan talked about this as an epidemic, it means that all of us have connections and relationships that, um, we now are experiencing this depression and suicide and what you and Liz are doing is helping. It's helping in an amazing way uh, and it's touching all of us. And then uh, your bravery to talk about it here on this podcast is very important to everyone. And Luan, David and I both are inspired by you at the Ohio State University and what you're doing. Uh, and I think you're giving a lot of people hope. Uh, both your message today and the work you're doing to build on this research and uh, I believe to reduce suicide in this country. Absolutely. And, you know, let me say that it works both ways. As much energy and hope as uh, I and, and the team here can give you and our community the energy and the passion and the compassion and the courage that comes from you, your families who have had these losses and the community itself who are starting to have these conversations more often than not. 
and who are bringing it up onto uh, a public space, that energizes us as well. And it makes us work harder and harder to get these answers that I spoke about that we don't have and to overcome whatever challenges that are in front of us and to keep on trying that this fight, this fight is very worth fighting. Uh, and this, this is the kind of fight we will keep on fighting on. And as David said, young David fought until he couldn't fight anymore. And it's now our turn to keep on fighting. Very well said. David and Luan, thank you very much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Thank you, Rick. Appreciate the opportunity and the platform. David has been my colleague and business partner for 15 years. He's a brilliant strategist who has counseled some of the leading marketers in the country. David and Elizabeth's bravery in speaking so openly about their loss has already been an inspiration to countless families. They both serve on the board of STAR, the Ohio State program focused on stress, trauma, adversity, and resilience. David regularly speaks, advocating efforts to reduce the suicide epidemic in this country. They've established a fund to assist families facing challenges in mental health with the Ohio State University Foundation. To learn more, visit osu.edu giving and search for David Roy Grislock II Fund or fund number 310434. Or feel free to call 614-292-2141. If you or a loved one is in need of help, please call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-8255 or text the word TALK to the Crisis Text Line 741-741. Text TALK to 741-741. Thanks for joining us.